Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service is both on our printed order of service and on the screen. Please stay if you can and have some tea or coffee with us at the end of the service, uh, but please don't wander into the breakfast. It's very enticing, but for some reason, uh, the hotel breakfast is being served next door, so the, the smells of bacon and eggs and toast will be wafting our way all through. Thank you, Anne. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who I call by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We're just moving now out of Christmas and into the next sort of phase of the church year. I had a look at the lectionary and they seem to do things in a mighty funny order. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to follow Jesus as he grows up over the next three weeks. And so our opening hymn actually takes us back to some degree into Advent as we dream of the day when Jesus comes. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And if you're able to stand as we sing, please do so. together in the Lord's Prayer, using whichever version and language feels most normal for us. So let's pray together. Loving God, we have come from many places to worship you. 
for many of us, that journey is familiar. We have travelled the way we always travel and are now settled in our regular seats. For some, though, the journey is less familiar or even new. This may be a place we visit infrequently or indeed the first time and we may be a little uncertain what to expect. Wherever we've come from and however we've made that journey, what unites us is our desire to worship you, to sing your praises, to listen for your voice, to bring you our prayers for the world of which we are part. We come knowing that you have been with us through the week now past and will be with us in the week just beginning. And this gives us a measure of comfort, hope and joy. We come knowing that you have been there to rejoice with us in moments of delight and to weep with us in moments of sorrow or regret. We come knowing that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus, who, by his life, death and resurrection, has defeated the power of sin and death. We come just as we are, each with our own muddle of faith and doubt, hope and fear, good and bad, needing to be reminded that you love us, that you forgive us our failings and that you equip us to move beyond them to become more fully who we are. And so, delighting in your love for us, we join our voices with those of your children in all times and places as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
so Jesus. We know he was born in Bethlehem. We know that his parents took him to Egypt for a number of years and then they returned home to Nazareth where he grew up. But what was life like for him? Well, we don't really know. We get the odd hint from the scriptures and we get more hints probably from what historians of that period tell us. So this week we're going to think about the kind of games Jesus might have played, the toys he may have had, and then next week we're going to think a bit about the kind of education that Jesus would have had. So I want everybody to think for a minute, what is your favourite toy, if you still have one, or what was your favourite toy if you no longer have your toys? Kurt, what's your favourite toy? Fire engine. Wow. Does it, does it make a noise? Does it make a noise? An elephant as well. A fire engine and an... Everything. Wow. You're a very lucky boy. Anybody else want to tell me what their favourite toy is or was? Jeff's favourite was a chemistry set. What was your best experiment, Jeff? They all went bad. Did you blow up the kitchen and get told off by your mother? Yeah? Anybody else going to tell me what they're... Jenny? Um, the doll's house my father made for me, which my children played with and now my grandchildren have played with. Wow. So Jenny's dad made her a doll's house, which she played with. Then her children played with it and now her grandchildren play with it. That was obviously a very well-made doll's house. Indestructible. Yeah? Anybody else? It's really interesting because actually, with the possible exception of Kurt's fire engine, nothing that you have mentioned needs batteries, nothing has a screen, nothing has any icons on it. These are all toys that you can play with that are what we might call a bit low tech, which is great because for most of history, toys were very low-tech, and I'm really pleased that the favourites seem to be the traditional toys. Have you ever wondered about what toys Jesus might have played with? Anybody got any ideas what kind of toys children might have played with 2,000 years ago? Sand? Sand? Um, well, possibly. Um, if you're on the beach, um, I would, yeah, possibly. That, that wasn't one of the ones that was in the websites I looked up, but who knows? Yeah, could have been sand. Actual physical toys that you could play with at home. You didn't have to go out to find. Any ideas? Dolls. dolls. You see, dolls is a really interesting one because Roman children would have had dolls and Roman children had animals carved out of wood. But Jewish children probably didn't because the law of Moses says you mustn't make any images of anything on <coughs> on the, the earth, no animals, no people. So actually in the Jewish areas there's much less evidence of dolls and animals, but certainly the Roman children, yep, would have had those. Who knows, maybe Jesus did have some if he, he was uh, managed to find some lying around somewhere. What other things do you think they might have played with? Yep, they, they had some sort of balls. Yep, certainly they had balls and they had hoops made of wood, we think. Most of the toys were made of wood. So 
I guess they would have been a bit rubbish to throw wooden balls, but you could roll them and, and chase hip, hoops. Um, also, spinning tops. Anybody ever had a spinning top? Yeah, did you enjoy your spinning top? Well, seems like Jesus probably enjoyed a spinning top as well. Okay, so that's the kind of toys they played with, and there, there's some evidence also of board games like draughts and, and chess kind of thing going back to there. But what about other games? When they were outside, we've had the idea that he might have played with sand, which is certainly true. What other games do you think he might have played outside? Well, they might have had skipping ropes, Joyce, but that, that doesn't seem to be evidence of skipping ropes. But they might have done, and just they've rotted away and nobody's found them, so who knows, yeah? Running games, yep. So what kind of running games, Wendy? Oh, yeah, chasing each other, races, hide and seek, yep. Climbing trees, yep. Who likes all those kind of games? Who likes climbing trees? I know somebody at the back who likes climbing trees. Don't you, Bonnie? You like a good climb of a tree. So Jesus liked climbing trees, probably. He liked playing hide and seek. There were hills that they would run off and play. It seems quite likely that they did make-believe games, so they would have played David and Goliath, or they would have played Moses crossing the Red Sea, or games like that. Who likes, who likes make-believe games, or like to make-believe games? Freya, what, what did you like when you were little? Or is it too embarrassing to say? No? You just... All kinds of things? See, one of the things I remember when we were over the road, when you were all much smaller, after the service... All the children would rush up onto the mezzanine and at one end there would be the boys playing space and at the other end the girls were playing fairies and then the boys would come and like interrupt the fairies games but I reckon the fairies could have put a spell on the boys. But it seems likely that Jesus played those kind of games as well. He probably liked dancing and music. We've got lots of evidence of, of festivals where they would dance and music, he might have played a flute. Certainly some children played flutes or a bit like recorders. And, and he would have just had a normal, ordinary life growing up with his brothers and sisters and playing games together. So he was just like us, very similar. And, and I think it's good, even though that story's not told for us, to remember that Jesus sometimes, perhaps when he was running over, he fell over and grazed his knee and he would have run to Mary crying because it hurt and she would have kissed it better. There would have been times probably when Mary was standing outside waiting for him to come back for his tea because he was having so much fun. He was a bit late coming home. But he was just like us. And one of the things that was really important to his mum and dad was their faith. They were very devout Jews so at different times in his life, they took him to the temple for special ceremonies. But also, week by week, they would have all gone as a family to the synagogue. So Joseph would have sat with the men, and as a small child, Jesus would have sat with his mum, with the women. And then as he grew older, he would have gone and sat with his dad in the men's part. And we start the story today thinking about when he was a baby, his parents took him to the temple and then we will move on over the next few weeks so we're going to sing a song which according to my software is called went to the temple eight days young but it misses that story out completely it starts a little bit later so it's went to the temple six weeks old i think is what it actually said six weeks young okay sorry so this is the one we're going to sing you probably don't know the words 
but you will know the tune, I think, and it just takes us through a little bit of Jesus' life, starting with him as a baby. Thanks, Paul.
The readings are from Luke chapter 2. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is a story that sets Jesus very clearly in his natural context as a child born to devout Jewish parents. Something that seems to be important to the writer of Luke as he introduces his predominantly Gentile readers to the man who has had such an impact on him. And if we read closely the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we can see there are a lot of parallels between the story of the birth of John and the story of the birth of Jesus and the way in which each of these boys was ritually incorporated into Jewish society. In the first part of Luke's account, we move very swiftly through three different rituals, each of which in some way was associated with belonging. And in this first reflection, we're going to look very briefly at each of them and wonder, even more briefly, how they might inform our own thinking, our own understanding of belonging and the rituals we use to, to mark belonging. So the first ritual that is undertaken is the ritual of circumcision. And to this very day, this is carried out by devout Jews on the eighth day after a son is born. The choice of the eighth day is really important because according to the Levitical law, the law of Moses, the mother is no longer ritually unclean due to postpartum bleeding by the eighth day. And so she is able to be present. And this ritual dates back to Abraham and it has a divine warrant. And the little boy has the foreskin of his penis surgically removed, marking him out as a Jew and separating him from the children of any other nation or faith. Even the name in Hebrew, Brit Micha, means covenant cut and echoes that understanding. This cut or seal of the covenant is binding. You cannot undo it. He is now a child of God. He is now marked out for life as a Jew. In the Christian traditions that practice infant baptism, the concept of covenant is sometimes used in in a similar way. 
And sometimes to that is added what, it's because of big words here, a theology of salvific efficacy. In other words, a theology that says baptism saves, nothing else is required. As if through this rite, the child becomes a member of God's family in a way that would not otherwise be possible. Now, whilst there are people who hold to such a sacramental view that this is an outward visible sign, if we're talking about baptism now, not circumcision, of an inner invisible grace, even an ontological change, a change in being, that's not a theology that, that I hold. And Christians agree to disagree on that one. There is no ritual in my belief that makes us any more a child of God than we already are, is, I, would be my argument. But if you feel differently, that's fine. When we look at the scriptural record, it's not clear that absolutely every Jewish male was circumcised. Moses may not have been circumcised. And certainly some of those who travelled with him through the wilderness out of Egypt seem not to have been circumcised. And that, to me, suggests that however important this ritual was, and however important, as Christians, we think, our rituals are, they're not the be-all and end-all. If you haven't fulfilled some ritual, it doesn't mean somehow you are outside of God's grace and God's love. So... I'm what is known as an ordinance theologian. I believe we do things because God tells us to do them, not because they do something, can I say the word magic? They do something to us. I think baptism is really important. I think the covenant of membership is really important and valuable. But these we do as a response in discipleship. We do them as followers of Jesus because he calls us along this way. They're not some kind of spiritual gatekeeping that says you are in if you've done it and you are out if you haven't. Because we are all God's children. We are all made in the image of light and likeness of God and nothing I do or nothing we do can make that any more true than it already is. But for Jesus, born as a devout Jew under a different religious understanding, this was a really important ritual. In order to belong, he had to go through this ritual. The second ritual was the redemption of the firstborn son. Right back through time, Jews were told that the firstborn of their flocks and herds, the first fruit of their crops, all belonged to God and must be sacrificed. They must be offered to God. And they were also told that their firstborn sons belonged to God and had to be redeemed. They didn't have to go and kill their firstborn sons. They didn't have to sacrifice them literally. But they, were, they belonged to God. They were um, sacred. They, their destiny was to become a priest unless they were redeemed by a sacrifice or a payment. And it seems really strange, doesn't it, to us, that you would do that, that you would have to buy back your first child from God. But that is still something that is practised by devout Jews to this day. And in fact, it's really complicated, because now we have babies born by caesarean section. 
so the literal understanding of the birth that opens the womb doesn't quite work. Some people have assisted conception. Some people adopt. Lots of people, their firstborn is a daughter. So this idea of redeeming the firstborn, the son that opens the womb, has been extended and revised, reviewed. But I suppose what strikes me most about this ritual, which to us seems strange, it's not something that we do, is it actually flips, is flipped on its head within Christianity. In Judaism, the firstborn son is destined to be a priest unless you buy him back from God. But what we believe is that in Christ, we all become priests. We speak of the priesthood of all believers. So rather than being redeemed from priesthood, we are redeemed into priesthood. Belonging to Christ, being incorporated, a word that literally means becoming part of the body, makes us co-heirs with Christ. We are all firstborns, if you like. And so we are part of a priesthood based not on our bloodline or our gender or our status or our race, but by the redeeming grace of God. This Jesus who was redeemed from the Cohen priesthood of Judaism is the same one who redeems us into an egalitarian servant royal priesthood. Maybe we should just take a moment to try and take that in because it's quite mind-blowing. So we have rituals that brought Jesus in to the Jewish covenant. And we had a a ritual that redeemed him as, as the firstborn. And then we have a third ritual that took place 40 days after his birth. And it wasn't a ritual for him. It was a ritual for his mother, Mary. Under the Levitical law, A woman who gave birth became ceremonially unclean and so excluded from any faith practice for seven days if the child was a boy or 14 days if it was a girl. Only after 40 days for a boy or 80 for a girl could she fully be reintegrated into the worshipping community. Such practices, I'm sure, seem abhorrent to us, and certainly the earliest Christians didn't do this. In fact, the early Christians rejected any idea that natural bodily discharges made a person unclean. And that's what the Jewish one was saying. These natural bodily discharges made the mother unclean. She was bleeding. She was unclean. The early church said, rubbish, don't do that. However, from the 5th century to around the middle of the 20th century, a practice of churching women became widespread. Now, if the origins of that ritual had been pastoral, that actually childbirth is physically demanding, the woman is tired, her body is damaged, she needs time to rest and recover, if that had been the logic, I think that would have been okay. But it wasn't. 
the logic was that because this woman was bleeding, she was unclean. It is to this day a sad reality that there are people in our churches who will refuse to take communion for a woman of childbearing age just in case she might be menstruating because that would be unclean. Even though they wouldn't consider the equally scripturally valid concern that a male minister may have ejaculated semen the same morning or that a minister of either gender might have vomited because under Jewish law, all three of those would render you unclean. It seems ridiculous and horrific, doesn't it, that we would exclude a woman from church, from taking part in in communion or whatever, because she might be bleeding, or a man because he might have had sex, or anybody because they might have been sick. But it does raise questions that are important for us about who we might think is clean or unclean. What might lead us to exclude somebody from worship and say, no, no, this far and no further? I think we would want to say nothing. But would there be? If somebody came in who was rip-roaring drunk, if somebody came in who was beaten up, whatever, disrespectful, would we say, no, 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 you can't be in? It's a big question. I don't have an answer. But it also made me think about how do we integrate and reintegrate people into our church family? Sometimes people are away from church for a while for really good reason. And I think most of us would be horrified at the thought of having a big ceremony to bring us back into church if we've been off unwell or or away with work or whatever but actually do we ever go beyond just oh it's nice to see you and and forget do we actually realize that things have moved on sometimes in that time and we need to to feel welcomed and loved again and it will be different for all of us there's no one right answer some people like a fuss some people hate a fuss But if there is something about an attitude that says we are all welcome, that nobody is excluded, but is also alert to the fact that someone's been away for a while and we just say, hi, are you all right? Nice to see you back. Are you up to date on what's happening in church? I think that's probably quite a good thing for us to build on. I think we're already good at it. Please don't hear that as anything other than um, me thinking out loud. I think we're good at it. The thing is, how do we continue to be good at it and ensure that we are all loved and valued as much as we would want to be? So Edith's now going to read to us the next part of the story. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about them. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She had never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. We can picture the scene, can't we? A nervous couple carrying their baby son through the outer courts of the temple, a place bustling with life as devout Jews and God-fearing Gentiles go about their business. Some have come to pay their taxes. Some are buying or selling sheep or pigeons. There are little clusters where a rabbi is teaching his disciples and the religious officials are keeping a watchful eye. It must have been very noisy, very hectic, very disorientating. So how was it that in this melee, not one, but two old people noticed the couple and spoke to them? Some commentators believe that Simeon was the priest who had performed the ritual for Mary and and that's a reasonable deduction but not all of them and certainly when I first learned this story as a child Simeon was just an old man in the temple and something drew him to approach this couple as they were leaving having completed the ritual whichever was true and we can never prove it either way He was a man who represented orthodoxy, a man who knew the scriptures, a man who was able to interpret them and explain them to other people, who held the little baby in his arms and in that moment knew to the core of his being that this was the fulfilment of his life's work. If he had been living in our day, he might have said, I can die happy now. But that's not quite the way the Bible's written. 
an old man holds a child and suddenly everything falls into place. And the beautiful words of Simeon's prayer are really important to Luke's gospel. They're unique to Luke's gospel. And in them we discover that Jesus is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for the people of all nations. And I love the record of how Mary and Joseph reacted when they heard that. They're just ordinary people. And sure, they've already had some interesting experiences before they get to this point, but they've brought their child to the temple according to the law. And in that moment, it seems that whatever the angel had said to Mary, and whatever she had sung when she visited Elizabeth, is, is forgotten. Because she's just blown away by what this old man says. Here is an old man who can see somehow into the future to a deeply, deeply poignant moment. And he looks Mary in the eye and says to this young woman, one day your heart will be broken as if somebody has struck you with a sword. This little boy that I hold in my arms, some people will love him and some people will hate him because as he grows up, all their secret thoughts will be revealed, will be brought to light. And then he blesses them. We don't know what words he said just that he did pray a blessing. A private moment in a very public place as an old man, a couple and their child stand together and he blesses them. And then they, they move on. They start to make their way towards the outside and, and back to the world and they're stopped again by a very old woman a widow whose life has clearly not been easy her marriage was short and she has been widowed longer than most people have been alive it seems she has no family to care for her and so she has devoted her entire life to prayer her wizened features spread into a radiant smile her gaunt hand reaches out to stroke the cheek of the baby and she starts to speak. And isn't it a shame and isn't it frustrating that we do not know what Anna said? Why do we not have Anna's words? So I was reading the commentators this week. Some of them are really bewildered by this. Because in Luke's gospel, we have Zachariah speaking at the following the birth of John we have Mary speaking at when she meets Elizabeth and these are both beautiful canticles of praise and prophecy and the old man Simeon his words are restored for posterity recorded for posterity but Anna nothing she praises God she speaks about the fulfillment of her hopes and dreams 
and of God's promises. But nobody wrote her words down. No matter how devout she was, nobody ever recorded what Anna said. And that is sad. But maybe there is an explanation. Maybe her words aren't written down because actually nobody could remember them afterwards. Or maybe they're not written down because as one woman speaking to another, as Anna spoke to Mary, what she said was so deeply personal, so deeply private that she never ever wanted to speak it to another person. But whatever the reason, her words are important. Important enough that Luke chooses to record that they were spoken, if not what they were. And I find that quite reassuring in a daft kind of a way. Because I often forget the words that people speak to me. But I can remember how I felt. I can remember the words mattered. I can remember that I felt encouraged, affirmed, hopeful. All the opposite. And I wonder if it's true for you too. That sometimes we can't remember the words that were spoken on a particular occasion. But we remember that they were spoken. And that they mattered. And that moment was significant for us. I wonder if that's true sometimes at the end of our services when we, we have a blessing. We say we close with a blessing. I can't honestly say I remember by Tuesday what that blessing was. But I know that we did it. And I know that in that moment it was important. And perhaps that's also true of Anna's words to Mary and to Joseph. I do sometimes wonder what they might have been. And I wonder what Anna might have said if she could speak to us. We're going to just hear the last part of the story now and then there will be some more music as we pause on our way like Mary and Joseph between this ritualised act of worship and the ordinary every day. When Joseph and Mary had finished everything required by the law of the Lord they returned to Galilee to the ruined town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. Amen.
And now let us bring our prayers to God for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we come to you now on this Sunday morning in the context of our public worship to bring our praises and our prayers. We give thanks for the many blessings we have received in this past week, and we give thanks for the grace given to us to live out our life amidst all its changes and challenges. In these past days, we have experienced many different situations and circumstances. Some have been ordinary and routine, even perhaps boring. Others have involved new and surprising situations and events which perhaps have come upon us unexpectedly and have stretched our energies, our abilities and our emotional resources. We give thanks for these precious moments when we can gather together in your house, when we can reflect on our lives as we seek forgiveness and renewal in worship. We recall moments when we have not lived up to the promises we have made to live lives dedicated to your service. We recall the hasty word, the unkindly and unhelpful opinion, the moments of harsh criticism when we so readily found the fault in others while neglecting our own shortcomings. Forgive us, Lord, for all of these lapses and grant us grace to overcome them in the future. We pray for the wider world today when it seems the globe and our nation within it are caught up in political, social and economic uncertainty. We pray that wisdom and understanding may be given to our leaders, that they may seek fair and just solutions to the seemingly endless problems which beset them. Uphold those in high office, in government, in industry and in our institutions, that the greater good of all the people may be their guiding principle and their motivating force in all their actions. This morning we would pray for the churches and leaders in our own Scottish Baptist Union and specifically to our sister churches in Alexandria and Alloa and Allness and for Mary Lee Anderson who is the chaplain to Aberdeen University. May each fellowship know your blessing as they seek to witness in their local communities and to serve others as opportunities afford. We pray for our own fellowship here at Hillhead at the Grosvenor May we be granted the power to persevere amidst our unsettled situation regarding the buildings. We pray for our minister, our managers, and all who work so tirelessly each week to maintain our worship and witness here. And within our own church family, we would remember today Katrina Hogg and her husband Ben. May they know your blessing in their married life together. And today, when thinking of our church family, who can ignore the long life and witness of Irene Allen, who died shortly before our 101st birthday earlier this week? If this were a purely secular community, we would say that Irene had become a national treasure. But all of us who have known Irene down the years have marvelled at her faith, our unwavering determination, her love of scripture, perhaps particularly the authorised version, her dedication in the service of others, especially those who have struggled to meet the challenges and trials of daily living. Throughout all these years, Irene showed a great pastoral heart and an unbending commitment to the church. To the very wide circle of friends who mourn Irene's passing, we pray for consolation 
as we acknowledge the life of such an outstanding servant of her master. Finally, we pray for each one of us assembled here today. You know us individually, and from you no secrets are hidden. Come to us to heal, to restore, and to encourage us in our daily walk, for you are the one who loves us as if we were the only one to love. We bring all these prayers in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Those of you who are closely studying your order of service will see there are some words, beautiful words. And we had hoped to have the choir sing as you usually do for uh, the offering. It's six parts, including me, that gets to five. It wasn't going to happen. But it is a beautiful piece, set of, a beautiful piece um, and, and worth contemplating as we take up our offering. And Paul is going to play for us now. Thanks, Paul. Loving God, we bring you these gifts of money. Some we have placed in the offering bags, others invisibly transfer from bank to bank, but all are offered in the service of Christ and for spreading the good news in this community and beyond. So accept us and them we pray in his name. Amen. Our closing hymn, Faithful Vigil Ended, Watching, Waiting Cease. Master, grant your servant his discharge in peace. We stand if we're able as we sing.
week we're going to do our blessing a little bit differently. I'm going to invite all of us to share in blessing one another as we go from here to face the challenges of a new week. You won't probably remember the words, that's absolutely fine, but hopefully we will remember that we did this and that it mattered. So here is how it's going to work. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to turn to any person that you would like to bless, and I will say some words and I then ask you to repeat them. And that person might not be looking at you because they might wish to be blessing somebody else, but that's fine, you don't have to see their face to receive the blessing. And then we'll repeat that a few more times as we work through the blessing. I hope it makes sense and it doesn't matter. And at the end, I will just draw that to a close and we will sing an amen. I'll, I'll try to signal to Paul when we reach that point. So let's bless one another. I invite you to turn to look at somebody and say out loud, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now somebody else and say, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Turn again and say, the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord be gracious to you. Again, the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. And one last time, the Lord give you peace. The Lord give you peace. And so may God bless us all, now and always. Amen.